morning, church. What an amazing, amazing song. I am tempted to say a prayer of dismissal and go get lunch early today. Um, that's a phenomenal lyric and a great reminder that we do serve a risen, victorious, glorious Savior. Um, as always, as I, as I come to exposit the Word of God, I, I appreciate your prayers, and I just ask that you pray for us as we work our way through this text today. Um, just as uh, by way of a little recap this morning, we are about a month into the book of Colossians. And at North Hills, you know this means we've covered about 12 verses. Um, we don't seem to get in, in a, big, uh, a big rush. This is three verses a week, essentially. Um, I don't know that we're going to try to keep up that frantic pace today, though. We're going to only do two verses today. That's all I've been given. And uh, we'll, we'll dig into this text. We're going to be in Colossians 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14 today. But before we do that, let's, let's remind ourselves briefly of at least some of the highlights of the past several weeks. I would invite you to just sort of scan the opening of Colossians as we work through this, this little recap. Um, initially, we saw uh, the, the book of Colossians begins with a standard sort of Pauline format. Um, with, uh, with so many of Paul's epistles, we, we see sort of a three-part breakdown in the opening. He identifies himself and the audience. He, we see there that Timothy is with him, and we see that he is writing to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae. He then goes on to offer a blessing of peace from God, sort of his way of greeting. And then from there, he expresses a profound gratitude for the faith of the believers in Colossae and for their love for the saints. Following this little introduction then, Paul goes on to clarify that this faith and the love that they see there is the fruit of the gospel, which is going to the whole world and which has come to Colossae by the witness of Epaphras. James Douglas did a fantastic job a couple weeks ago, I thought, um, challenging us with a gospel message, proclaiming to us essentially that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And then last week, it's this reality of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, that we highlighted in our celebration of Reformation Sunday. Ryan last week taught through verses 9 to 12, um, in which we see Paul describing the contents of his prayer on behalf of the believers in Colossae. And you'll remember that Paul um, essentially prays for three things. He prays with, for, without ceasing, but he prays for three things on behalf of the believers in Colossae. He prays, prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of God, with the knowledge of God's will, so that they will walk in a worthy manner before the Lord, bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. That was the first part of his prayer. He also prays that they may be strengthened by the power of God, which will result in endurance and patience. And then finally, he prays that they may be joyously thankful to God who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of faith. And it's this last item of prayer in verse 12 that I want to use today as sort of a springboard into verses 13 and 14. Um, our primary text is going to begin in 13, but because of the logical nature of Paul's writing, I want us to take a minute and just back up and catch the context of this. So we're going to begin our reading today in Colossians 1 verse 9 and then pay particular attention as we transition from verse 12 into verses 13 and 14 we'll see the points that we have for today there but beginning in Colossians 1 verse 9 for this reason also since the day we heard of it we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding 
so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, that is, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we've come to the point in our service in which we are to exposit your word. We are to expound upon the truths that you've given us so clearly in scripture. And it's our prayer today, Lord, that you clear our hearts and you clear our minds, that you guard us from error as we seek to see the unvarnished truth of your word. Lord, may your Holy Spirit move in our hearts and guide us into all truth. And Lord, we just pray that the, the, the teaching of your word today would rebound to your glory and that you would edify your people through this time. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So because, as we mentioned, the writing style of Paul is so, um, it's so logical and there's such a flow to it, I want us to take a second and just really sort of hone in on this statement of verse 12 and see how this propels the thoughts that we see in verses 13 and 14. We see in verse 12 that giving thanks to the Father, we, we are to be joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. If we recognize that the only possible way for anyone to be qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints is through genuine conversion, then I think we can safely say that in verse 12, this idea of qualification has to do with salvation. It can mean nothing less than God's gracious work of salvation in Christ. So then the conclusion naturally flows that all men are born in a state in which they are unqualified. And it is God who then qualifies them for the inheritance of the saints. So how does he do this? Well, simply put, to be qualified by God is to be saved and made righteous in his sight. And in saving or qualifying lost people, verses 13 and 14 describe three divine actions that explain what it looks like when God qualifies believers. And these three actions in verses 13 and 14 will serve as the main points of today's message. We see firstly in, uh, in, in Colossians 1.13 that God rescues those he qualifies, he relocates those he qualifies, and he redeems those that he qualifies. And I'd like to take these points one at a time and just work through the text. Returning to Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Now the word that gets translated here in our text as rescued is the same word that in the Lord's prayer is rendered as deliver. We'll remember from Matthew 6 that Christ teaches his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a cry of help to God. And the act of delivering or rescuing from an impending disaster is what is in view here. We also find this same word, this same uh, idea in 2 Peter as he references Lot's rescue from the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'd like to turn there. We're going to go to several places today in cross-reference. Go ahead and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 7 and then we're going to skip to verse 9. 
Again, we're analyzing this word rescue. We're trying to get a sense of what God's word teaches about what it means to be rescued. 2 Peter 2 verse 7, we read here, If he, that is God, if God rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, skipping to verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, I want us to note here that when the righteous are rescued from temptation, they are rescued from this domain of darkness upon which God will always pour his wrath. Sin will not go unpunished. God is a holy and just God, and it is, would be contrary to the nature of God for sin to be unpunished. But that punishment does not extend to those he has qualified for the inheritance of the saints. Notice, why did Lot need to be rescued? He needed to be rescued because the wrath of God was being stored up for the wickedness of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So God simultaneously in this act rescued Lot because he was counted righteous in Christ and condemned the people, the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah. We can remember the the, the back and forth in, in which Abraham was trying to elicit from God a number of righteous people that would be necessary to restrain the, the, the wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And rather than uh, withholding justice, which God will never do, he simply saved and qualified Lot for the, the inheritance of the saints. This physical deliverance of Lot provides for us a perfect illustration of the spiritual deliverance that we see when we are saved by the grace of God. Thinking back to Colossians 1.12, this is the qualifying work of God. In a perfect application of justice and grace, he rescues his people, the qualified, from the judgment which rightly falls on those who remain unqualified. Now, just a brief explanation of this domain of darkness that we see in in this verse. Um, I want to look at both of these words, domain as well as darkness. Um, the, the, The term, the Greek term for domain here, is the same word that we see when we see the word authority in the Great Commission. Um, Go ahead and and turn to to Matthew 28. Uh, I'm going to reference a couple of uh, passages here. But Matthew 28, we we all know that the Great Commission is the command for believers to go with the gospel. But let's remember that, that this commission does not just say, go and make disciples. It says, therefore, go and make disciples. This is Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And we know from our our study in hermeneutics and we know from what our elders teach us, anytime you see the word therefore, you have to back up and figure out why it's there, right? So therefore, in this case, points us back to verse 18. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority, the same word that gives us authority, gives us this idea of the domain of darkness in Colossians. So the same word is here is to use to indicate the authority that we have as we go with the gospel, pressing the truth of the gospel into our culture. It's that same word that's used for unqualified people who find themselves under the authority, under the dominion, over the, under the domain or the reign of darkness. And as we consider this issue of darkness, it can mean nothing other than sin. Throughout Scripture, we see the contrasting themes of darkness and light, darkness and light. Isaiah 9, in prophesying of the coming Messiah, tells us that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
And Jesus even speaks of himself directly in these terms in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel. We remember Jesus saying as he speaks to the Pharisees, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then the Apostle John in his first epistle also juxtaposes light and darkness when he proclaims that God is light and in him there is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So we see this, this, uh, the, the, the two elements in play here, darkness and light. And this domain of darkness is speaking of the position that the unqualified find themselves in, the position that we ourselves found, found our, ourselves to be in um, prior to our conversion. So this brings us really to our second point. If we find ourselves in our unqualified state in a position of darkness, in a position of sin, we see in the second part of Romans 1.13 that God relocates those he saves. It says in, in, in the second part of Colossians 1.13 that God transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now I'm going to call this relocates because John likes for the points of the sermon to have the first starting letter. You've probably noticed he, he likes alliteration. So relocate goes with rescue, which will eventually go with redeemed. Um, that's, this is for John's benefit. He, he likes, that's the way he likes his sermons to go. So I'm going to try to model that. But first of all, this, this re relocation that we're talking about, this transfer, is not a physical or spatial transfer, but rather it's a spiritual change of position. Also, our new position, once God has qualified or saved us, is said to be within the kingdom of his beloved son. And we need to make a few comments here regarding this, this idea of the kingdom of God's son. And what I'd like to do is remind you of our recent study of the book of Daniel. Now, how many of you think that seems like it was a long time ago? It really wasn't. We, we were recently in the book of Daniel, and we were talking a great deal about the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Christ actually in the book of Daniel. You'll remember that God revealed King Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel in chapter 2. And remember, there was a statue made of various materials that represented the Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman empires, the four world empires that fell in, in rapid succession. This statue, representing the four kingdoms, was then toppled by another kingdom, which was represented in a stone cut by no human hand, which would then grow into a mountain that fills the earth. This stone is the kingdom of Christ, initiated in the ministry of Christ and continuing to this day. And all that are being saved, or as Colossians 1.12 says, all those who are being qualified for the inheritance of the saints. Now, because I don't want you to just take my word for this, and because I don't trust you to remember the sermons that were preached six or eight months ago, let's turn to Daniel. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 2. I want to begin this reading in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 34. We're going to pick up at a point after Daniel has described for King Nebuchadnezzar the various materials within his statue. He's told him the dream that he saw. He's told him about the statue. And beginning in Daniel 2.34, Daniel begins to explain this stone cut by no human hand. So we read in Daniel 2.34, uh, Daniel's words to King Nebuchadnezzar, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. 
Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now advancing to verse 44. Verse 44, we get a further explanation of this kingdom of Christ, which at that time was to come from our perspective has already come. In verse 44, we read that in the days of those kings, that is the kings of those four empires represented in the statue, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Okay, so we see this, this beautiful picture, if you will, of these four amazing kingdoms. The Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. These were four kingdoms that were un, um, unparalleled in, in their power and in their dominion over the physical earth. And what Daniel was prophesying was that there would be a stone that would absolutely topple the greatest kingdoms that the world had ever known. And we saw that in Christ. Daniel 7 sheds even more light on this idea of the kingdom of Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 13. Daniel 7 and verse 13. And remember, this is the passage that deals with the ancient of days and the Son of Man. An exciting, uh, incredible prophetic chapter in Daniel. Daniel 7, verse 13, we see that uh, Daniel's vision was, He saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now you'll remember, as you read through the New Testament, Jesus' favorite designation for himself was what? Son of man, right? Again and again, we see him referencing himself as the son of man. And that is a reference back to what Daniel is teaching here in Daniel 7. So, Daniel sees this vision, one like a son of man, and this might need a little bit more explanation, and I didn't mean to spend so much time on this, but let me just, let me just say this. We, we, we ask ourselves, what does this mean for, for one to be like a son of man? Well, Jesus Christ, of course, was like a son of man, but was he merely a son of man? No, Jesus Christ, eternally present with the Father, Jesus Christ, active from the moment of creation, right? And, and, and then in eternity past. There's never been a time in which the second person of the Trinity did not exist. So referring to Christ as a son of man, that is in no way an affirmation of some of the cult teachings that, that teach that Jesus was a created being. That's not at all what we're saying. Um, Daniel is saying here is that there is one like a son of man, one who takes on the, the, the outward persona of a son of man, but is something in and of himself much more than a son of man, okay? Jesus, truly human, but also truly divine, without mixture or confusion. Okay, just a, just a quick, um, quick point there for the, for the divinity of, and, and true humanity of Christ. But this one, like a son of man, uh, we see in verse 13, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that is Christ, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The kingdom of God, 
the kingdom of Christ will never, ever falter or fail. We see also in the New Testament, in the ministry of John the Baptist, that he was all about proclaiming and announcing the coming of the Messiah, the initiation of Christ's kingdom, that is. And essentially, John was saying, hey, pay attention. This is what Daniel was talking about. Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2, we see that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and his, his message was simply this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in fact, the first recorded words of Jesus Christ's public ministry was a restatement of John's message. Following Christ's temptation in the wilderness and the short time that he spent in Capernaum, Jesus Christ's first words of his ministry were, in Matthew 4, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message of Jesus Christ was a message of the kingdom. The redemption of Jesus Christ was a redemption toward the kingdom of God. Finally, we see regarding this kingdom that there was a point in which Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of casting out demons by Satan. We remember that. Um, Jesus refuted the Pharisees by saying that a house divided against itself will not stand. Essentially, why would Satan be casting out Satan? And Jesus said very clearly in Luke 11, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the question has to be asked, did Jesus cast out demons as an example of his divine power? Absolutely. So according to the words of Christ, the kingdom of God had come upon them, evidenced by his dismantling the powers of darkness. So what I'm hoping that we take away from this as we look at the kingdom references in Scripture is simply this. When God qualifies his people in Colossians 1.12, he rescues them from the domain of darkness, but he also relocates them within the kingdom of his son. This is a kingdom that was prophesied by Daniel, announced by John, and then actuated by Jesus Christ himself. Believers throughout history, including those of us alive today, become heirs of this kingdom because God qualifies us through the blood of Jesus Christ. So when we are relocated from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son, we are essentially adopted into Christ. And that's another wonderful principle of our salvation, of our redemption. Ephesians 1, verse 5, we see that in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And then in Romans 8, uh, the beautiful passage of, of adoption, we see in Romans 8, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's a beautiful, intimate phrase there that indicates the personal connectivity from us to God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is what we're talking about when we're saying that God has qualified us for an inheritance with the saints. Well, the third point of our sermon today, um, returning to Colossians 1 verse 14, we see that not only does, does God in his salvific act um, rescue us and relocate us, but he also redeems us when he saves us, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So finally, this last example of God's qualifying work is one of redemption. To be redeemed in the technical sense is to be loosed from some binding debt or penalty. 
Okay. Now, this, this makes more sense to us, I think, if we will take a moment to comprehend the discrepancy between the perfect character of God and the flawed, sinful character that each of us has. Remember, every sin is actually a violation of the law of God. And simply put, the law of God is the absolute standard of God's infinite righteousness. So anytime we violate that standard, an infinite standard of righteousness, any um, violation of that represents an infinite discrepancy between the righteousness of God and our righteousness. This is why we say we simply cannot do enough good works to earn our salvation. The only way to satisfy this infinite sin death, well, I, I guess there's two ways, essentially. Um, people with an infinite sin debt um, can opt to spend an eternity enduring the wrath of a holy God. I suppose that's one, one way of satisfying that sin debt. But the preferred option should be option two. And that is through repentance and faith, our infinite sin debt can be satisfied in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ lived, as, uh, as uh, Evan prayed this morning, Jesus Christ lived an absolutely sinless life. He lived to the standard that was demanded by the law of God. And he died anyway. There was nothing in the life of Jesus Christ that would have warranted physical death. But he endured that death as an absolutely innocent man on our behalf. So that his righteousness in his death can be imputed to those who God, God qualifies through faith. Okay? And we see this in Romans 5 verse 17. For if, man, if because of one man's trespass, that would be Adam, through Adam death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So when God qualifies us for an inheritance with the saints, he does so by redeeming us through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The prolific hymn writer Fanny Crosby has beautifully expressed this joy that we feel at the idea of being redeemed in her famous hymn, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It. Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. So as we come to the end of these three points today, there are some takeaways that I would like for us to, uh, to, to sort of uh, work through here and some exhortations that I'd like to leave you with. Um, we've seen that God's qualifying work for inheritance within the kingdom comes through Christ. It involves three divine acts, God's act of rescue, God's act of relocation, and God's act of redemption. But let me exhort you this morning with just a couple of things. When we look at the world around us, I think it's important that we acknowledge there are really only two categories of people on this planet. Especially around a time of the election, we tend to divide ourselves in lots of groups, right? We hear about getting out the soccer mom vote. We hear about appealing to um, people of this racial demographic, appealing to the college educated, appealing to the working class. All of these divisions are created. But uh, in, in the most simplest explanation, there are really only two divisions within mankind. And no, they're not men and women, although that's a pretty in important division. Uh, the, the division I'm talking about is between the qualified and the unqualified, the saved and the lost, the regenerate and the unregenerate. Everyone you pass in your day-to-day -day life, the people that you live with in your home, the people that you see at the grocery store, the people that you work with, the people that you attend school with or go to, to homeschool co-op with, every human being you encounter falls into one of these two categories. 
a category of being qualified by the grace that we receive in Christ, or the category of being unqualified by virtue of our birth into sinful Adam. And I think this is a sobering reminder to us. Um, I think we have to start by asking ourselves some questions. Uh, What category do I fall in? Am I counted among the qualified? Or am I yet to be qualified? Am I yet to be converted and saved? Ask yourself that question. What does it mean then to be saved? Well, it means to reach a point of acknowledging your sin and repenting and turning in faith alone to Christ alone. That's the only way of salvation. But then once we have determined if we are in fact qualified, if we are in the body of Christ, I think we have to ask ourselves the following question. What is our commission as saints? What is our commission as believers? We've referenced the great commission that we read in Matthew 28, but essentially we have the unspeakable privilege of taking this gospel, this message of hope to the lost. What does that look like in your life? Does that mean that you need to quit your job and go to the mission field? Well, for some people, that's God's call on their life. But for most of us, this means that the, the, the qualification of God that has placed us within the mercy and grace of Christ needs to be at the forefront of our mind. Everything that we encounter in this life should be filtered through a gospel filter. How do I need to react to this situation? What advice do I need to give this coworker? Um, how do I need to speak to my family at Thanksgiving this year? Okay, what do I need to say? What do I need to do? How then shall we live based on the fact that we are redeemed, we are relocated, and we are rescued by a sovereign act of God. So today, my charge to you, my encouragement to you, is that we all seek to glorify our great God as we faithfully proclaim this message of salvation. We proclaim it with our words, we proclaim it with our acts, we proclaim it with everything that we do. May that be our focus as we go from this place today. Let's pray. Our God, we are grateful for this passage. We are thankful for the truth that we see in your word today. We're thankful, Lord, that we are the recipients of an inheritance of the saints. God, we're thankful that you have qualified for this, that you have taken us out of the domain of darkness, placing us into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of your Son. God, we praise you that the the stone cut by no human hands has toppled world kingdoms and continues to grow and fill the earth. And God, we are ultimately so thankful that we have been included in that growth and and we are overwhelmed by the reality that we get to participate in the growth of your kingdom as we go with the gospel. Father, give us boldness, uh, give us grace as we communicate the truth of salvation to those that, that you have placed in our paths and in our lives. May we always be careful to glorify you in everything we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.